So by show of hands, how many of you have ever hunted for treasure? Not as many as I thought. So let me ask this a different way. How many of you have ever gone shopping the Friday after Thanksgiving <laughs> on Black Friday? What about Cyber Monday on the internet? Okay. What about July 12th, 2022? I heard somebody say it, Amazon Prime Day, right? So whether you're like the merchant in the second parable that was searching for something specific or whether you were like me on, on July the 12th when I wanted to check the order status of something that we had ordered for our grandchildren, I found, I, I, when I logged onto my account, I saw the glorious blue banner that says Amazon Prime Day. And it's even got a countdown on there to tell you how much time you have left. And then it said, you might be interested in this. And I said, you know what? You're right, Amazon. I am interested in this. <laughs> because Pastor Scott and I had, had a conversation a few weeks before about the soda stream fountain because I love seltzer water. And my favorite, by the way, now don't everybody run out and buy this because they don't want it to be all gone, but Kroger's Mango Seltzer Water is phenomenal. So that's my favorite. So Scott was telling me that they've been using one for a while, and it's, he said if you drink a lot of seltzer water or soda water, it's very good because it's, it's much more cost-effective from doing that. So now, <laughs> for those of you that have your smartphones or an app on your smartphone, I apologize in advance because you're probably going to get searches now for soda stream fountains when you log into Amazon or search for something on the internet. So, but in our text this morning, we're going to look at a different kind of treasure to start with. And we're going to be specifically looking at how Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. And, and we've got four main points today. The first one is, why did Matthew use the phrase kingdom of heaven? Secondly, what is the kingdom of heaven? Third, what is the value of the kingdom of heaven? And our, our fourth point is actually what Pastor Justin refers to as the sermon in a sentence, or what Pastor Casey refers to as the big idea, and that is the hidden truth is the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. So our first point today, why, why did Matthew use the phrase, oh, before I jump into this, I need to apologize to Brian Brown, because Brian puts together our children's bulletin every Sunday, and, and I sent to him a list, and for those of you, the parents, if you've got children that are using this, this fourth point is a little bit different than what I sent to Brian earlier in the week, so you may have to help the kids through that, so it's not going to be exactly as it's on there. But why did Matthew use the phrase kingdom of heaven? So he used this, it's, it's, it's a phrase that's used in the, New, in the New Testament, and it's used exclusively in the gospel account of Matthew, which he uses 32 times. The other gospel writers refer to it as the kingdom of God. And even Gary, when he started to read this morning, almost said kingdom of God. But this begs the question, then why? So Matthew was writing to primarily a Jewish audience with his text. And there's one view that suggests that the reason that Matthew used this phrase is because the, the Jewish people do not like to speak the name of God, the name Yahweh or Jehovah, because they do not want to, one out of reverence, but also they do not want to run the risk of blaspheming God or taking God's name in vain. And so they substitute words like heaven or even phrases like the Almighty or the one above. But, but I don't believe that that's why Matthew used this phrase. One reason is Matthew actually uses the phrase kingdom of God four times in this gospel account as well. 
And, and we see specifically as he's recording the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, he uses both kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. He says, and, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, I think this, this supports the intentionality that Matthew used in, in differentiating from the other gospels with the phrase kingdom of heaven. Another reason I don't believe that it was Matthew's intent to avoid using the name of God because he actually uses the name of God more than 50 times throughout the course of this gospel. So I don't think that's why he did it. Rather, I think the reason that Matthew was referring to the kingdom of heaven is because he wanted to, to identify to the Jewish people a stark contrast from the, kingdom of, from the earthly kingdoms to the heavenly kingdom. You, you see, and, 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 and it's likely that, that Matthew had the influence of the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapters 2 through 7 provide accounts of, of earthly kingdoms that fail and do not last, and yet he also contrasts that to a heavenly kingdom which is established forever. In Daniel chapter 2, he's interpreting the, the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells him of four earthly kingdoms that will come. One will fail, the next one will succeed, that one will fail, the one after that will succeed. And then he contrasts that in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, where it's recorded, and in those days, let me start again, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to, one, to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it, being the kingdom of God, will stand forever. The, the focus of the Jews had been the, what, what they were looking for in their Messiah was a king who would establish an earthly kingdom and would remove the yoke of oppression from the Roman Empire. And, and, and they kept looking for this, and this is one of the reasons why they did not recognize Jesus is because what they were looking for was someone to save them from the earthly experience rather than focusing on the heavenly kingdom. And in fact, Matthew's gospel, the, the entire gospel, focuses on contrasting earthly kingdoms, again, those that fail and do not last, and the heavenly kingdom, which is established forever. We, we see this first phrase used in, in Matthew chapter 3, where, where John the Baptist is speaking in verse 2, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as, as he was beginning to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And shortly after that, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and he's tempted for 40 days by the devil. And, and one of the temptations that the devil uses to tempt Jesus is to reign on earthly kingdoms. We see this in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So the devil was tempting Jesus with earthly kingdoms, and Jesus' response is one from Scripture, but also focusing on the heavenly kingdom. This, this phrase the Lord your God, when, when these words are combined, this gives the picture of God our leader, God our chief, 
or, or God the one who commands us. And Jesus is resisting the, the devil's attacks with the reference to the heavenly kingdom. And then finally, when Jesus begins his preaching ministry on this earth, in Matthew 4, 17, he says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So again, as the Jews were focused on an earthly king to save them from the oppression that they were facing from the Roman Empire, at this time, Matthew is trying to shift their thinking from earthly kingdoms, which fail and do not last, to the kingdom of heaven, which is established forever. So our second point is, what is the kingdom of heaven? As we look through the parables, through all the parables in the New Testament, specifically the ones that refer to the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel or the kingdom of God in the other gospels, there's never a description provided. I'm sorry, there's never a definition that's provided, but rather a description. And, and Matthew, he, he records this in Matthew 13, verses 10 and 11. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So this mystery or these secrets of the kingdom of heaven had not been fully revealed. And, and as Matthew records Jesus' words, they're not going to be revealed fully to everyone. And from these parables, we get, once again, a description rather than a definition. So let me offer a very brief definition of what is the kingdom of heaven. It's simply that God will reign as king over all of his creation for all time. In a nutshell, that's what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is. It's God reigning over all of his creation for all eternity. Daniel prophesied of the kingdom that was to come. And, and, and I will say, too, that, that God's kingdom has already been established. It just looks different today. So for those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have the, whole, we have the kingdom of heaven indwelling in us. Within our, with, with, within our hearts. The Holy, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And Romans 14 says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So right now, for those of us who have the saving faith of Jesus Christ, we have the kingdom of God within us. There's also the kingdom of God that's going to come and that is one, uh, I believe, in a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ upon his return. Some of you may disagree with that from an eschatological perspective, and that's okay. But ultimately, what will happen is that after all those things in the end times occur, God's kingdom will be established. And we read of this in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And specifically, let me highlight Revelation 22, 1 through 5. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and he will reign forever and ever. 
So we see that picture of the kingdom of God. Again, that's, that's a brief definition of what is the kingdom of God. So now we're going to focus on what is the value of the kingdom of heaven. And as I reread this passage here from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, we're going to read, if you have a parable, or I'm a parable, paragraph titles in your Bible, in the ESV, it's the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the great pearl. So verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In both of these parables, Jesus is using a literary tool referred to as simile. So for my high school English students out here, help me out if I get this wrong. Simile is a comparison of two unlike objects or two unlike things using the words like and as. And I see the elementary principal over here nodding, so that's a good thing. Um, so we see Jesus using similar to compare things that normally would not be compared, but it helps us to better understand what he's talking about. And, and these comparisons are also better understood if we look at them holistically rather than directly to the object that follows the word like or as. So, so for example, instead of looking at, at the comparison of the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, let's look at the entire parable for the whole situation of the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that a man finds. In his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. So we're looking at this whole picture of the parable to help us get a better understanding of the description that Jesus is providing for us of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I remember as a kid, I'm sure I buried things in the backyard. And the people live, the people live in the house can have it now because I have no idea what it, what it would have been. But, but this might seem strange to us, right? So burying your possessions, your valuable possessions in a field might seem strange to us. But at this time, in this era, this was something that was very common because the, the individuals were trying to protect their valuables either from theft or from the pillage of war. So Josephus, who was a first century historian and a military leader, he describes it this way. He says, the gold and the silver and the rest of that most precious furniture, which the Jews had and which the owners treasured underground, was done to withstand the fortunes of war. So again, this was a common practice. Now, what would happen is someone would bury something and, and maybe they were forcibly removed from their property. So, so think of the nation of Judah when they were taken captive into Babylon. Anything that they had buried in those fields, they got forcibly moved somewhere else. Now, it's also likely that their possessions, well, I shouldn't say likely, we know this, that their, their property was given to other people. And so those people would not have known where those, treasures, where those treasures were buried. So it's possible that these treasures in some of the fields in Jerusalem could have been there for centuries. And as it gets handed, as his property gets passed from one person to the next, either through a forcible movement of the property, not the property moves, the ownership moves, right? Or the person leaving and forget about, or possibly the owner died and didn't tell anybody where he buried things. So with that, we also don't know what the man was doing in the field. He probably was not looking for treasure. He might have been farming the field or tending to it. It's possible that he was just walking by and happened to see a portion of the treasure that was sticking up out of the field. 
and went over to explore to find what it was. But regardless of what he did, he finds it, and he immediately realizes the value of this hidden treasure. And it's so valuable that what he does is he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now, in, in, in the mind of this person, he did not have anything in his possession currently that was as valuable as the treasure that he had just found, the hidden treasure that he had just found. And I, I think it's also not a stretch to say what, when he went to buy the field, he was probably thinking this treasure is more than I could ever possibly receive at any other time, so I need to sell all that I have and go buy this treasure. He, his determination of his worth is exemplified by his going and taking these actions, by selling what he has and then going back to buy the field. But notice his demeanor in verse 44. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In his joy. He goes and sells all that he has in his joy. He goes and buys that field in his joy. He was so excited to find that treasure, and it was so valuable to him that there was nothing that he owned that he wanted to keep. He wanted to sell everything that he had to get this, and he did all of this in his joy, and he takes the steps to acquire it. This parable remind, <clears throat> excuse me. This parable reminds me of this, uh, the story of Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria was a leader of, as she describes it, the LGBT rights movement. This was back in the late 90s. Uh, and she was also a co-author of, of the first same-sex policy at Syracuse University, where she served as a tenured professor in the English department. She also had, had department responsibilities as one of the heads of one of the sub-departments there, again, on the campus of Syracuse University. And she also served as the, the, the faculty advisor to the LGBTQ, or the LGBT at the time, student, a student group. What she was also doing, she was also writing a book about the religious right in America. And she wanted to know as much about her adversaries as she could possibly know. So with this, she started doing some things. And through a series of providential events, and by providential I mean God-ordained events, she was led to a, a, a local pastor and his wife. And what they did was they welcomed her into her home, or into their home, for meals, for time of reading God's word, and for singing hymns as well. Rosario was not looking for God. By her own admission, she was looking for a fight and for those, against those who loved God. So let me, her own words, she states this. Here I was, an enemy, writing a book against these people. I despised them, I mocked them, I made sport of our Bible reading and psalm singing. And, and while researching these books, while researching this book that she was going to attack these people, something happened. She found the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. And it changed her. Just like the man in this first parable was changed, she was changed through this as well. 
And while Rosaria admits that she did not sell all of her property, she gave up everything. She walked away from her livelihood. She walked away from speaking engagements. She did that because she realized the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus spoke of this in Luke, chapter, Luke 9, 23, when he says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And this is what Rosaria did. She denied herself, picked up her cross, and followed Jesus. So maybe this is you today. Maybe you do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within you because you have not confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If that's you, I pray for you that today God would open your heart for you to understand the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven and that today you may call on Jesus as your Savior. In our next parable, which is the parable of great value, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, found one, sold all he had, and goes and buys it. There's a difference here, though. The man in the first parable was not looking for anything. Okay? The merchant, however, was looking for something specific, in this case, fine pearls. And since he was a merchant, and since he was looking for something that he transacted normally, it's safe to assume that he had money with him to buy fine pearls. But as he goes to search for these fine pearls, he finds one. And, and, and the value of this, this, this is described as great value, which emphasizes the surpassing value of the one pearl that he found. Again, keep in mind, he was looking for multiple pearls, for many of them. He had money with him to do that, to conduct those transactions and to buy those pearls. But when he found the one of great value, he didn't have enough money to buy it. So like the man in the first parable, he goes and sells all that he has and comes back and buys the one pearl. Now, I'm not an expert in pearls. I actually have a story about that one, which I'll save for another time. But the merchant was experienced in buying and selling pearls. And he knew the value. He knew what he was wanting to spend to find fine pearls. And, and my, my take on the value that he placed on this one pearl, this great pearl, that it was so valuable that he probably thought, I will never see anything like, I have never seen anything like this and I will never see anything like this pearl again. He probably had other pearls anyway. But he goes and sells all of his possessions, all of his stuff, Thinking about Stuff Mart from VeggieTales. He sells all the stuff that he had and he buys this one pearl. It's, it's the value of the hidden treasure and the value of the pearl that, that, connects these pearls to, or the, that connects these parables together to emphasize the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. But there is one caution that I want to talk about very quickly. And that is that the kingdom of heaven cannot be bought or sold. So Jesus is simply using the, the parable to make a, a comparison between two unlike objects, right? And so that it's helped the original audience and for us today to understand it better. So th there's an account in the book of Acts 
where the disciples are preaching and seeing people come to faith in Christ and they're laying hands on people and they're receiving the Holy Spirit. And there's one individual named Simon the Magician. Let, let, let me read this encounter between Peter and Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8, verses 18 through 20. It says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me the power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You see, Simon the magician wanted the power of God for the wrong reasons. Now, this account also says that he immediately asked the disciples to pray for him so that these things would not happen to him. Paul, however, gives us a right view of earthly possessions compared to heavenly things. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I love Paul's description of this. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, Paul knew that there, was no, there is no earthly treasure that can compare in any way to the value, the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. So I, I want to provide another example like I did after the first parable. This one, however, does not end well. We, we see this in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22, where a, a young man approaches Jesus. And in verse 16, behold, a, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what still do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What a contrast between Paul's view of heavenly things and this young man's view. Paul said, I count everything as loss. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. But the young man put a value on the kingdom of heaven. Unfortunately, his value of the kingdom of heaven was not the surpassing value that Matthew is communicating through these parables. See, what he was doing was he was comparing the value of his earthly possessions, which he deemed surpassing 
the heavenly kingdom. He had it backwards. He was more concerned about losing his stuff than he was about following what Jesus had just told him. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He walked away from the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. In our fourth point this morning, we'll look at the hidden truth of the, of the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. So turn with me back to our original text, Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice here that Jesus gives the interpretation of this parable at the same time he's communicating the parable. This is the only time that Jesus does this. In all the parables that he told, this is the only time where he immediately goes in and explains it as a part of the parable that he's communicating. And I, and I believe the reason he's doing that is not only to connect these three parables that he just talked about, but also to connect the parable that he had just explained to his disciples about the parable of the weeds. See, earlier in the day, Jesus had been speaking to great crowds. We see that in, in chapter two of the, or verse two of this chapter. Jesus had, had talked with them, or told them, I should say, he told the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of the leaven. And then he then left that great crowd, went into a house, where his disciples followed him, and they requested of Jesus, they said, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And then Jesus explains to them the parable of the weeds. Then he explains to his disciples. And then he immediately tells these three parables. So he's, he's telling them the parable, the explanation of the parable of the weeds. And then as soon as he does that, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure hidden in the field in his joy, sells all he has, buys a field. Same thing with the parable of the merchant. And then we get into this account of the parable of the net. And, and, I, and, and the reason I think that all four of these are connected, and not just the three that we focused on this morning, is because as Jesus was telling this account of the weeds, or the weeds of the field, he was telling it to a very large audience. And the disciples didn't understand it because they asked Jesus to explain it. So when he explains that parable which was a farming analogy, he then talks about the parable of the treasure, the parable of the pearl, and then the parable of the net. And, and, and the reason I think he did this is because this smaller group, his disciples, four of them were fishermen. This was their livelihood. They, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, it's like, a net that is thrown into the sea. They knew what that meant. Maybe, so the, the, the four disciples were Andrew and Peter, James and John. Maybe Andrew was the one who stood on the shore and anchored the net on one end while the other, while the other three went out in a boat and did a sweeping movement to collect fish in the net. 
Or, or maybe they both, or maybe they all four got in separate boats with some other people and stretched the nets between these two boats to collect fish. See, what they understood with that was that the purpose of casting the net was to gather everything they possibly could. And then they knew also that once they got, once they pulled in the net and they had all these fish, they sorted them. We see in, in verse 48, when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but the bad they threw away. So again, this had to resonate with the disciples more so than the parable of the weeds. And, and I think that Jesus is using this because these two parables pretty much parallel each other the entire way through. And so this was to help the disciples understand the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. And more specifically, this gets to the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven being demonstrated or expressed in God's grace. There, there, there are two pictures that are given here in verses 49 and 50. One, we see the angels will come and separate the evil and throw them into the fiery furnace. Well, Steve, you just said the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven is expressed in God's grace. Where's the grace in that? Well, we actually see it in the other picture that Jesus paints for us, which is, this is the implied picture, if you will. And that is with the righteous. Again, in verse 48, when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers. So this sorting of good into the containers is preserving the good fish, protecting the good fish, even isolating the good fish from the judgment of being thrown into the fiery furnace, or as Revelation chapter 20 says, the lake of fire. Revelation 20 verses 14 and 15, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So where we see God's grace is evident in one of the probably the most well-known verse of all the Bible, John 3, 16. I'm going to expand that and include two other verses as well. So John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the son of God. See, because of our sin, we stand condemned. In, in simple terms, sin is running away from God and pursuing our own agenda. It, it's because of our sin that, that Jesus says in John 3, 18, whoever does not believe is condemned already. There's nothing that we have to do to be condemned because of our sin nature. We're already condemned. That's also why Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. Jesus came to save. So, this is where we see the hidden truth of the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven that's expressed in God's grace. Because God did not abandon us in our sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And because of God's grace and God's love for us, God himself became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived a perfect life. This is a life that we should live, but because of our sin, we're incapable of living. Jesus then died the death that we should die because of our sin. 
And God wants the place of lordship, that kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. He wants that in us today. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Romans 14.17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Again, we see the grace of God in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Apostle Paul reinforces this gospel message this way in Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe that's the first time you've heard that. You're thinking, saved from what? Saved from the judgment that Jesus was just expressing in this parable. This judgment that leads to the casting of the bad fish or those who do not believe in the name of the only Son of God casting them into the fiery furnace or the lake of fire. And again, I, I believe Jesus told these parables in succession to help us understand the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven so that he could reinforce the aspect of God's grace being demonstrated where judgment is also demonstrated to those who don't believe. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That was Mark chapter 6, verse 36. And again, Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. The second stanza of the hymn, I Surrender All, fits perfectly here. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus, take me now. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Where are you at today? Have you experienced God's saving grace in his faith through by placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone as Savior? And, and do you still see the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven? If so, that's awesome. But, but maybe you have that saving faith and maybe as, as, as the writing to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter two writes, maybe you've abandoned the love that you had at first. If that's you, I, take, I encourage you to take time this morning. We'll have some a time of, of, of communion here in just a moment. Ask God to renew your love for him. Or maybe you've not experienced the joy of salvation in Jesus Christ. Whether you're like the man in the first parable who was not looking for anything and today you just happened here and you hear this. Or, or maybe, you were, maybe you are searching for an answer. What is God? Who is God? What is this all about? You've heard this morning about the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. And if this is you where you've not experienced the joy of salvation, I pray for God to open your eyes to the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. For God to open your ears to his call and for God to open your heart that you may place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior.
Please join me in prayer. God, we love you. And, and as we think about these parables today, how you've shown us the value of your kingdom. And, and, and as you contrast that with the judgment, it makes you, the value of your kingdom so much more apparent. God, help us to understand this. Help us to realize this. For those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, help us to love you more. Help us to know you better. Help us to be burdened for those around us as, as Len prayed earlier for the unbelieving world around us. God, for those that are here this morning that may not have this saving faith, I, I pray that you would open their eyes to see the gospel, open their ears to hear your call, and God, open their hearts that they would place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I thank you for this, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.